This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the NBC Morning News Roundup from March 26, 1942, with reports from Australia, Moscow, London, Washington, and New York. Just a note, this recording is missing the final sign-off from the NBC studios. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning. Time now for the regular roundup of war news. In calling in our on-the-scene correspondents, we are to hear for the first time from one of the most vital sectors of the Southwest Pacific. Go ahead, Canberra. This is Martha Lagronsky calling from Canberra. Today in this tiny capital city, General Douglas MacArthur cemented in friendship the political unity of the Commonwealth of Australia and the United States of America. This afternoon, accompanied by his staff, MacArthur came, saw, was seen, and as usual, conquered. Dressed in the same kind of casually fitting U.S. Army tropical kit in which he arrived in this country from the Philippines, MacArthur struck immediately the note of informality which has been his habit in all his dealings with the Australians. Even in this informal capital, the general's informal dress and absence of insignia of rank struck an effectively incongruous contrast among the spick and span uniforms and formal clothes of the high-ranking officers and parliamentary representatives of Australia. MacArthur's first meeting was a two-hour conference this afternoon with the Australian War Council. In free debate with the Australian representative, the general discussed all the problems associated with his command. In the words of Prime Minister Curtin, I quote, specific attention was directed to the composite structure and disposition of the Allied forces in B and the reinforcements required. The enemy's tactics were reviewed. Our own basic strategy as a counter to these was fully explored, unquote. The War Council meeting was followed by a dinner in the parliamentary dining room where the general, though guest of honor, sat on Prime Minister Curzon's left, while Lord Gowrie, Governor General of Australia, took the seat of honor on Curzon's right in deference to his position as representative of the British Crown. The only print visible on the banquet table was fruit cups, and the tone of the conversation, from what I glimpsed through the window outside the banquet hall, was seriously sober throughout. 
Earl MacArthur conceded enough to form Natalie to wear a bush jacket. His aides, Brigadier General Marshall and Major General Sutherland, sat at dinner in their shirt sleeves. At the conclusion of the dinner, MacArthur delivered a short speech, written with his usual grace and happy choice of striking phrases. I have come, he told the Australian parliamentarians, as a soldier in a great crusade of personal liberty, as opposed to perpetual slavery. We shall win or we shall die. And to this end, I pledge you the resources of all the mighty power of my country and all the blood of my countrymen. From the dinner, the general proceeded to the chamber of the House of Representatives, where he was accorded the unusual honor of being permitted, though a non-parliamentarian, to sit on the floor of the House. The general's visit to the representatives proved the highlight of the day. He was scheduled to remain only 20 minutes and then to proceed to dinner with the governor general. With a proper ding-dong political battle, complete with heckling and sarcastic interchanges developed, the general proved himself too much of an American to be able to walk out. An attendant who came up to remind him at the end of the 20 minutes that the governor general and his guests were waiting was greeted with an impatient shake of the head by MacArthur while he crossed his knees and settled down to enjoy democracy's best show, an oratorical battle between irate parliamentarians. The debate was primarily between the president and the former minister of labor over an opposition charge that the government was favoring one waterfront workers' union over another. After a bit, the ordinary interchange between the ministers was enlivened by a gentleman from New South Wales who was a miners' representative. Trump, early and convinced of his right to have his say, the miners' representative alternatively chewed vigorously on a mouthful of gum and interjected salty comments to indicate his contempt for both parties of the debate. The heckling representative's favorite crack was, I quote, what's that got to do with the Japs coming here? which he occasionally varied with a booming bellow, in which he informed the rest of the house, I quote again, thank God you're not the prime minister. MacArthur obviously had the time of his life and stayed an hour and five minutes instead of his scheduled 20. The gum-chewing miner made him chuckle, but when former Prime Minister Menzies disposed of the entire affair with a crack, I quote, the Minister of Labor should be congratulated on having circumnavigated the entire globe of irrelevancy. MacArthur let out an unashamed roar of laughter with the rest of the listeners. The general summed up today, as well as it can be summed up, when he shook hands with the speaker on leaving. Mr. Speaker, MacArthur said, if the men of Australia fight as well as they argue, we are certain of victory. That was Martin Nagronsky speaking to you from Canberra, Australia. Now, from San Francisco, we take you across the continent to our newsroom in New York. Here in New York, we have news from Moscow. A Russian dispatch from the far north says the Germans have tried to carry out a mass air raid on the Soviet Arctic port of Murmansk. The Soviet dispatch says that 56 Nazi planes were used in the raid and that 11 were shot down. And the Russians say they've inflicted great losses on the Nazis in repulsing a two-day attack on the Staraya Rusa area of the Northwestern Front. Now, the Soviet Information Bureau says that hundreds of soldiers were killed in one sector when the Germans used large forces supported by tanks and planes. And 1,800 more Nazis have been killed in two days of fighting near Leningrad. Meanwhile, a swift-moving Russian ski unit has penetrated the Nazi 16th Army base at Staraya Rusa and rescued several hundred prisoners. The daring raiders struck 30 miles across the ice of Lake Eulen. But general combat developments again have been summarized officially as making no essential changes in the battle lines. 
Now the Moscow radio speaks of internal troubles in Germany. 198 men are said to have been killed by explosions of baggage loaded with explosives. And a well-known Soviet press spokesman, Mr. Yamashev, makes a new demand for Russia's allies to open another front against Hitler. Writing in the English-language Moscow News, uh, Yamashev says the anti-Hitler coalition can end the threat of the Nazis in a comparatively short time, but only if idle soldiers and equipment are put to work. And now across the Atlantic Ocean, our reporter in Great Britain is ready with news of England. This is London, John McVeigh speaking. Three very significant things have happened here in the last 24 hours. Mr. Maisky, the Soviet ambassador, asked the Allies to open up a second front. Hundreds of RAF bombers pounded the rural region of Germany last night, and today enrollment in the British Home Guard became compulsory. The many squadrons of British bombers that took part in last night's raid included the biggest and newest types. Results of the raid are said to have been good. Today it was announced that at the request of the Commander-in-Chief, British Home Forces, men are going to be conscripted for the Home Guard, those part-time soldiers who will hold each locality in case of invasion or guard the country if regular British mobile forces are sent abroad. You've probably heard of the speech Mr. Maisky made yesterday when he presented the Order of Lenin to four RAF fighter pilots who fought on the Russian front. The speech was an urgent call to the British and the other allies to set up a second front. I sat a few yards from the Russian ambassador in one of the gilt embassy chairs. One side of the room looked out over a sweep of green lawn. But movie spotlights focused on Maisky as he leaned over the table to read his script. He's a good extemporaneous speaker, but yesterday he didn't want anyone to doubt that every word was carefully thought out in advance. So he read the speech. What he said can be boiled down to this. The Allies must act quickly. He says potential resources don't count, but mobilized resources do. Victory consists in having a decisive preponderance over the enemy at the decisive moment in the decisive place. And the first and most necessary thing is the offensive spirit and the whole strategy of war, including political and economic warfare. When I heard Maisky say that, I couldn't help thinking that General de Gaulle might have been the man leaning over the table. A few weeks ago, he'd said the same thing in almost the same words. The repetition gave Maisky's words a particularly forceful effect. Maisky said Hitler is going to stake everything on this spring and summer, and the Allies must do the same. This summer is decisive. Time is not working for us. The days are grim, he said. History is not like the pavements of Piccadilly. When the speech-making was over, I talked with Soviet diplomats and military men. These are some of the impressions I came away with. In the first place, Maisky didn't make up that speech on the spur of the moment. He represents the Soviet government. And the Soviet government wouldn't have asked for a second front unless Russian military leaders thought such a front is possible. There's a Soviet military mission in Britain. Their reports must form the basis of what the Soviet leaders think Britain can do. They must think Britain has the men and material to open up a second front somewhere. Where the attempt might be made is another thing. It depends on where the Allied war leaders can best concentrate their forces for the blow, where intelligence reports show the balance between Allied offensive power and German defensive power is the best for us. The risk is great, of course, but the risk may be greater if we wait. One strong impression I had was that if we beat Germany, if we can drive a knife in Hitler's back while he's still tied up in Russia, we don't need to worry much about Japan's temporary victories. With the full power of America, Britain, and Russia turned entirely against Japan itself, Japan can be smashed quickly and thoroughly, and so controlled that she will never again become an aggressor nation. This is John McVeigh in London, returning you to New York. Next, events at home reported by Earl Godwin from the newsroom in Washington. 
and good morning, folks. You know, there's a deep hint of something tremendous in the idea that you may someday soon hear about, rather specifically, about 100% all-out American mobilization of war workers for war work. That is, turning the entire man and woman power of this nation into war production channels, taking the folks where they are and putting them where they need be to produce. It's being talked of conversationally, but there is nothing as definite, for instance, <coughs> as a selective service machinery for soldiers. But as we progress, and as we get on to the fact that America has got to win this war almost on her own, with the front six or more thousand miles away, it looks very much that we would have to take up the slack and overtake the axis in their two-year head start on us. Did I say two years? Possibly more, and much more than two years in many respects. And while this all-out work mobilization is being whispered about here, and I think prophetically, Canada seems to be even nearer than we are to an all-out mobilization of their population to 100% war work.